You're listening to My Rapids Real Estate Show on WFHR, that's AM 1320, and now 97.5 FM. We're bringing you real estate news for Wisconsin Rapids, Nakusa, and all of central Wisconsin. So welcome back. I'm Ben. And I'm Carrie Nikolai. And we're with Codal Banker Seward Realtors here in Wisconsin Rapids. It is. We're getting to the uh, St. Paddy's Day. So by the time that you're listening to this, we're going to be, would have had our corned beef and cabbage. Of course. And our Guinness. And now in our exercise of you wanting to, you know, focus on Nakusa, mm-hmm. we have guests in the studio. So Brandon and Shane from Jacoby Q's, welcome. Good afternoon. Hello. How are how, you guys? Yeah, how yeah. are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great. Doing well. Now, there's not, not much snow down in Nakusa, if I remember right. I was down there a couple days ago, and not too much snow. Yeah, no, the rain took care of a lot of it now. Mm-hmm. So. I always hope by St. Patty's Day we have no snow on the ground, and we can be mowing lawns and having fun in the green, green grass. <laughs> oh, right. It's always a good hope. So now this also comes into kind of the springtime. I know... Um, Pool league season is in transition right now. Some are ramping up, some are winding down a little bit, but springtime sports are really coming into play with volleyball. Um, I drive, you know, through Nakusa every now and then, and I see the Jacoby Q's uh, building there. And Carrie, you mm-hmm. mentioned that it's a, more of a historical building, too. There's a, a couple other places that it was. Yeah, so the building that the showroom is in currently, that used to be an electrical motor shop, electric motor shop. Okay. And then um, the second portion of the building, um, which has the white facade to it, that uh, used to be the old theater in town. So it still has a projection room. Oh, how neat. Upstairs. And Do you have like any of the old posters that used to hang outside or no, all that stuff none of is the old, gone? <laughs> yeah, all that stuff is gone. But it used to be the uh, a print shop. There okay. was a long printing press there. And they had... Uh, stored up in the theater room a bunch of the old blocks for block printing and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was left there. So now, what do you guys do at Jacoby Q's? I assume it's pool Q's. Anything else? Yeah, mostly pool Q's. So we primarily manufacture custom Q's at the shop. Uh, we also do sell um, dart supplies, um, some table supplies, uh, but mostly pool Q's and billiard accessories. Okay. Do you refelt any pool tables? We do not. You do not. Okay. No, we do not. So if someone was interested in having a table service, they could contact us and we could forward them to the correct person. But okay. we we don't service tables. Okay. So our our primary business is pool queues. So what started the uh, the pool queue queue business yeah, in Nagusa? What's the history? Yeah. What where did it all start? From. Okay, so my dad actually started in 1983, um, and at that time we lived on a hobby farm, mm-hmm. and I was probably in the third or fourth grade at the time, and uh, uh, my dad had been very active in the the pool scene around central Wisconsin, and a pretty good player, probably one of the top players in, in the area, and he was working in the paper mill, we had a hobby farm, and he was just dabbling and buying and reselling cues. And the company that uh, we were reselling their cues had contacted him and uh, offered him a lathe for sale. Um, something you could service cues with, like do cue repair, okay. but then also build custom cues or build cues. Um, so that's how it started. So once Gordy Hart from Viking had contacted him, he went to Madison, picked up the lathe, brought it home, and then just started to dabble. In cue making, like most people who start in the craft, they get a bar cue and they cut it in half and you put a joint in it, do, you know, simple little additions to it to make it into a nicer cue. Right. Um, and he just started that way. So it was my brother and my dad then just dabbling in, in cue making. Okay. Um, and then back in the, the mid-80s, the landfill uh, was owned by Torque. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually they had grown to the point where they were kind of encroaching onto the the farm area. So then they purchased the farm from our family. We moved to Nakusa and uh, dad pretty much then was out of the hobby farming. 
And we started continuing building queues and, you know, dabbling in the, the queue craft once we moved to Nakusa. Um, and then it just kind of just slowly continued to grow year after year where um, uh, it was my brother and my dad primarily just building queues, selling them to friends and family. Uh, we were still buying and selling queues from other brands. It was probably in the um, early 90s that um, my cousin Phil Hamilton had started to work in the business a little bit. He started to dabble in it. He was going to school for machine tool at the time. Um, well, that fits in perfect. Yeah, it does fit mm-hmm. in perfect because it's mostly machining. Yeah. Um, and then it was uh, 1992 is when I graduated. Um, I was going to go to school to um, in the criminal justice program. Um, I wanted to become a police officer. And I enlisted in the Army to receive the GI Bill to um, pay for schooling. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad had talked to me into staying in town, going to Mid-State, because they had a police science program, staying at the shop. Um, So I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I think I'll do that. (laughs) Right. So then I stayed in town, and then I was working um, more in the business, like probably half-time, like not a full-time, because I was – going to school at that point that's when Shane had started at the shop as well so it was about 1993 that I think Shane 94 94 and I think at that point it was just a strictly a hobby right we had um dad still worked in the mill full-time you know, he'd be working in the evenings and he'd call me up and say, oh, what's going on at the shop I want to see what's going on at the shop (laughs) you know like always interested in what was going on And, um, but when you have a hobby and you have people that are starting to work in it full time, then everything about the business starts to change. Mm -hmm. So all the things that you don't do because you just don't have time, right. Start to get done. So then the business really started to grow and it was probably 1996 that, um, it became, it had grown enough that it could be a full-time business. That we thought, wow. And at that point, it was kind of a transition for myself where I thought either we're going to going to take this on as a full-time business or I need to find to do something else because I was about done with school. And we had <clears throat> gotten involved with a business consultant who had, you know, looked at the business, you know, like encouraged us to really take it to the next level, right? Um, so then we had put together a business plan to decide that this is what we were going to do. Um, and, but yet dad was still working in the paper mill, you know, cause he had a, a really good job at the paper mill. Oh, yeah. He worked in the screens department. He was there already for 20 plus years. Okay. So he had really good seniority. Yeah. And uh, there was, <clears throat> I think some point where something had broken in the mill and he had to basically go in the sewer and do a bunch of work there. And he thought, boy, like, I could really go through life, look back and say, boy, I really wish I would have done that. Right. And seized on the opportunity. So two weeks later, he walked in and quit. And everyone thought he was crazy because who would quit that job mm-hmm. when you have it pretty much set? Right. Yes. But I think for him, he knew that it was either if I stay in the mill, I'm never going to make that choice because I always have that fallback. Right. So when you burn your boats, then it's, you have no other choice, but uh, to succeed, to succeed. Right. So, so then that's when it really took off because then Shane and myself worked full-time in the business. Then dad was working full-time in the business. <clears throat> and we hired a couple, couple employees. We were still in, uh, on the outskirts of Nakusa. We were on Ranger road and we had built a 1200 square foot shop. I think it was, <clears throat> it was yeah. funny kind of how, Everything uh, works because at that point, you know, our perspective of what the the business of the shop was <clears throat> like, wow, this shop is like bigger than we're ever going to need. We have we moved all the equipment that we had from our basement, which was like two lays and <laughs> like maybe a table <laughs> saw. We moved it all up into this big sh- space, right. which seemed large at the time. And it was probably a year later and 
we thought, boy, this is not big enough. <laughs> like we need to, to grow. And we were selling cues at that point. We had um, started distributing some cues where we were building them for customers to resell. So we had a, a good customer friend of ours who lived in La Crosse who, who was buying and selling our cues at the time. Um, so we started to, to develop like a wholesale structure. So we we're developing distributors. <clears throat> so then we ended up coming across the building in Nakusa. That's where we currently are. Um, and at that point, I think it was probably 4,000, 5,000 square foot building. So then we moved all of our equipment there then. And it doesn't look like a really huge building from the outside. It, from the outside, you know, I think most people in Nakusa probably wonder how the heck a pool cue shop stays in business in Nakusa. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you look at the building and you think, well, there's not much going on there. But right now we currently take up about 17,000 square foot of just straight manufacturing space. Okay. Um, and we currently sell cues all around the world, uh, probably as a percentage of our business, about 1% comes from town or less. Okay. Right? So we, so we do a lot of distribution. Um, so when we moved then to Market Street in Nakusa, um, and it, which really worked out good for us because it had the electrical requirements we needed. Um, and again, we moved all of our equipment and we thought, well, this is like the best. <laughs> this is beyond what we will ever need for a facility. And then after about two years, we ran out of space and then we were using the <laughs> space at our old shop on Ranger Road. Um, and then eventually we added on to the back of the building. So it runs all the way from Market Street to the alley. And then we used all that space. And then eventually we bought the building, uh, which contained the print shop. And again, every time you think, oh boy, this is like, but I've learned over the years as you have space especially in our business that allows us to grow right. because it's usually an equipment requirement that we need to increase capacity to produce more product. Um, so then as we've, so then pretty soon we've utilized all that space. Right. So, um, so just as continue to grow year after year, you know, um, so it's been a, it's been a good run. <laughs> now, is there any like particular common type of wood that your pool cues are made out of? Yeah, so we use about um, 150 different materials or species of wood okay. that come from all around the world. I was going to say, that's going to be the follow-up. Where is the furthest that you've had to source? So most of the um, woods come through different distributors. Um, a lot of it comes from South America. Um, we use a lot of Cocobolo, Bacote, um, Zeracote. Um, all that comes from Southern Mexico. And then we also use a lot of ebony, different types of ebony, um, which come from India and different parts of Af Africa. Um, we use some domestic woods, a lot of bird's eye maple that primarily comes from the Upper Peninsula, Michigan. Okay. And then we also have uh, used a lot of just straight maple that comes a lot from Canada. So it comes from all over the world. Um, and what's interesting about the the cues or what we're doing is we're crafting functional pieces of art so when you look at the cues most people think that they're just stickers because that's what you most people would expect to see right but everything all the artistry is actual parts and pieces that are cut and pieced together and they they come together sometimes it takes us hundreds of hours to build just one pool cue um, and it may contain three thousand little parts and pieces that we put together to form that design oh wow so yeah it gets to be so what is craft. your most time-consuming pool cue that you have made? Well, every year um, there's a guild of custom cue makers. It's called the American Cue Makers Association. And they um, and our next show is coming up um, in April. And all the top builders from around the country submit cues and they get judged on and voted on. So usually we build one cue that's on an extreme level. So the the... This year we built a set of cues, so it's actually two cues. One is uh, yin and the other is yang. And each cue probably took me 200 hours in time and labor in those. And they're very specifically themed. Okay. Um, so the cues are designed on the theme. All the materials are selected on that theme. So they can be really, really interesting. And in the 14-plus years that they've had the competition – uh, we've either placed first or second 13 of the 14 years oh, with wow. cues that we've built there in Nakusa. 
So that makes sense for this year. You're like, what? what's more challenging than doing one queue? <clears throat> Let's do a pair of queues. Yes. Right? <laughs> Let's do seven. So then do you guys come up with the, the, the designs or are the people who are going to be purchasing, they, they kind of come up with this design for you to do? So who comes up with these designs for these pool queues? So if... So we build queues that we just resell um, that are part of a, a line or a series. Um, so we do a lot of that. And then we also build a lot of what we call freestyle queues. So all the employees in the shop have, have some say in what we're building. So Tony, who assembles the queues, he may put together something that he likes or a material choice. And then it may go to Clint who does the inlay work and then he'll choose the pattern that he likes that goes with those woods. And then it may go to Shane and Shane will pick out the wrap and the, the color choices. So it creates like all this creativity that you wouldn't normally get. So mm -hmm. we do a lot of cues that way. Um, but when customers come to me, a lot of times they already know what they want. So they'll come with a design or a pattern, something they've put together, drawn out, sketched. Um, so they know what they what it is that they want. Uh, when I build the queue of the year type queues, I come up with a concept or a, a theme, and then I and then throughout the shop, like when we did the Ronin queue, you know, we bounced ideas off of each other to decide, you know, what we were going to do with it, like colors, combinations. So I researched the theme, and then I so the goal is to build a queue that is based on that theme, but you might not understand the theme until you. you you're told what that might be. And then it starts to all make sense, okay. right? So like the the yin and yang queue that I, I built. So the the queues themselves oppose in color and combination throughout the queue, um, where starting in the middle of the queue, it has a tree of life that is inlaid 360 degrees around the queue where it's the black bleeding into the white. And then as the, the direction of the inlays point in opposite direction, and we aligned the long points opposing the short points, the... Uh, more beautiful design opposing the less beautiful design all done in a black and white theme. I, and not a lot of symbolism that would scream what the theme is. And then the two cues oppose themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you take them and you set them side by side, they're a hundred percent opposite of each other. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's fun. Now, when you source the wood, do you guys have to like kiln dry it or does it already come kiln dried for you? So, I mean, this is not like we're going out to grandpa's back 40 and we're cutting down uh, a maple and sending you the, the tree itself. I, I guess it's like how much prep is involved yeah. from the, the raw product you get. Okay. So from start to finish, when we build a custom queue, the process itself takes a minimum of six months. So when we, so if you get a tour of the shop, um, you would see cues everywhere. We probably have, I mean, we build about probably three, 4,000 cues a year, I would guesstimate. Um, so we have at least that many in process floating around the shop at different stages. Um, the materials themselves, like when we build a shaft, the material for the shaft can take a year for us to season it or okay. we're stage cutting the materials yep. into size. Mm -hmm. So, and then the hardwoods, um, those, it depends on what moisture content it comes at, in at. Um, so depending on what the moisture content is, we, we try and source it kiln dried if possible, where it's already dried to a certain moisture content. But once it gets to the shop, you know, it could be all different percentages. It could be like 12%. Well, then we would sticker it. We have a small kiln that we would dry it in to get it to a, a moisture content where we feel we could turn it. Do you feel that because each different wood, when especially when you kiln dry it, you've got that different moisture content. Do you find that you need to continually kiln dry it because you're using the different types of woods to in order to get everything to the same moisture? So <clears throat> we climate control the shop for temperature and humidity, so we keep it constant year round um, between thirty to to 40% relative humidity. So all the materials we store in that environment, and then when they come together, they already add a good equilibrium okay. for moisture content. So then so then until they get to a certain point, we don't we it don't turn prevents them over. All the cracking and all the, you know. Correct. 
so that yep. way it doesn't get too dry. And now you have it have a nice piece that shattered like in the middle of the design. And now you got to dig everything out. Correct. Yes. Because, yeah, as the woods dry, they can crack or they can check mm-hmm. um, or move around where they just won't stay straight. So so we do in the process, we're doing things to to try and prevent that. Okay. Shane, you've been pretty quiet. Is there anything you'd like to add to? He's a very quiet gentleman today. Yeah, yeah. Um, You're here for moral support, it sounds like. Yes, moral support. <laughs> well, you, you do the, the wraps, it sounds, and what's that part of it? Um, well, I've done just about everything there at okay. one time or another. Um, but my specialty is pretty much the wrap area, the finishing area, um, inspecting, making sure the orders are right to how they're written up. Um, and then, yeah, the wraps, I pretty much am a specialty in that area. So the wraps, are you talking like? Um, Linen wraps, leather wraps. Okay. Yep. Um, just about anything you can think of the wrap on there, I can probably put on there. What is the weirdest thing that you put on there, uh, on a pool cue? Probably Stingray. Really? Yeah, just because it's it's extremely hard to work with. And, and so where a, do you source that? Um. That's a good question. I'll resource those stingrays from. Well, so a lot of times um, there's different suppliers who will specialize in different materials. Um, they use stingray a lot of times in handbags or really high-end shoes. Okay. Um, so we'll just source based on the color and what the customer wants. Um, we'll, we'll buy a hide, and then that's where Shane takes over. So the difficult part about a stingray leather is it's um, almost like a shell of armor on the the fish, mm-hmm. right? So it's like almost like bone on the outside. So I think you have to cut it on like a bandsaw, right? To- yeah, I kind of cut it out roughly on the bandsaw to get this this shape that I want. And then uh, I use a disc sander to kind of sand the rest of it down to the size of the wrap and, and then glue it on and once it fits, right. which is totally opposite the way I do any other wrap. Uh, the other wraps I usually fit over the queue and cut it while it's on the queue to fit it. This I have to do the opposite way just because it's really hard to work with. But when it's done, it's very unique looking. And Yeah. So as a consumer looking at a pool queue, what, what makes a good queue? What, what, are, what are some things I could be looking for to see if I have a good one or something that's really, really cheap? I mean, okay. other than the price. Other than price. Well, it's really the material selection. Okay. So, um, you know, like a queue that you might get at Walmart. Um, for instance, it just wouldn't have good quality materials. They wouldn't use hard maple that's sourced in the United States. It would be um, located more like they, there's a species that's called um, Chinese maple. So it's much softer. Um, also, just the finish and the inlays and the various elements of the queue, like the design. So some of it's the artistry that drives the price, but a lot of it is also just the, the core materials that are, are used. Um, and then when you play, start to play at a higher level, you know, your requirements get to be more um, stricter. S- stricter or specific. So you may require a very specific weight. And, you know, on nicer cues, they tend to have a weight system that you can adjust the weight. And then they'll use, like on our cues, we use a better grade tip and a better grade ferro and higher grade shafts and better shaft tapers and better joints. And like all, every single part of the queue is thought through on, on why you would do it that way. So if you play a lot of pool, it's worth it because it could be your most used possession, just like somebody who plays golf and they may golf every day. If you play pool every day, Mm -hmm. you want something that you can depend on. Now, is there like a particular way to determine the length of, of a pool queue? Those are like a standard length or it depends upon height of the user? Yeah, it depends a little bit on height. Um, In the industry, it's a little traditional. So a standard pool cue is 58 inches. Currently, it used to be 57 inches. Like if you would play pool in the 20s, it would be a 57 inch. Now it's a 58 inch cue. Um, But the trend in the market now is people tend to play with longer cues. So now it's not uncommon for us to build 30-inch butts and 30-inch shafts, so the cue is 60 inches long. Um, so what is, what, by, by gaining all those extra few inches, what is it, what does the player actually get out of having a longer cue? Uh, better reach on the table. Um, also, um, the taller you are, 
um, your stroke and your stance is going to be stretched out farther. So then having a more consistent stroke when you play the game. Um, so similar to, to golf, if you're six, three, you're not going to play with the same club as somebody who's four foot six. Right. right. Because right. they're just, you're going to, your stance changes because you have to crouch more than if you're playing with clubs that are too short. It's the exact same thing with pool, right? You have equipment that then fits your body type. Okay. It also depends too on your skill. So, um, so the cues can range in weight, a wide variety of weights. So depending on your skill, you might choose to have a heavier cue versus a lighter cue. Um, you may decide to then to have a much larger shaft, which is the side that hits the ball. Um, so there's all kinds of little factors that you would take into consideration when picking a correctly fit cue. Okay. And is that something you guys do right there at the shop too? So, you know, someone wants to come down and get a pool cue we can go there we can try try some out and see whether what fits and what works yeah absolutely so we have a, a 10 foot pool table in the showroom that if you come to the shop you can try them out we can adjust the weights um, we can watch the way you play and give you a recommendation on different factors if you want to get a tour of the shop we give people tours of the shop all the time where you can see how they're made and understand what it is that you're purchasing okay what was um, kind of personal choice. What was your favorite that sticks in your mind that you had made? The favorite cue that you had made in the past? For me, it's probably the Ronin. That was my favorite. Right. That was a cue that we built, what, three years ago? Oh, probably four years ago. Okay. Four years ago. It was a cue that we built very specifically for the American Cue Makers Association. And that cue was built on a um, samurai theme. So what's that? That sounds like really neat. Yeah, it was really neat. It was probably one of the fastest cues we've ever sold. We had, um, I think when we finished it, we did the show, we won the award and we sold it in two days. So it was one of the fastest <laughs> cues we've ever sold on that level. And um, that cue, we had used a material called Mokumegane. It's like a Japanese metal um, where it's blended metal and, it, and it's... Uh, uh, means wood grained metal. Okay. Um, and we acid etched it. And then we had done lots of inlays of mother of pearl, abalone, black lip mother of pearl, contained a lot of ebony. And um, I think the most interesting part was probably the extension, yeah. which, which Shane wrapped a red uh, stingray leather on the extension, which is traditional in like a samurai sword. Mm -hmm. And then we had done a silk cord that we wrapped it and finished it with Turkish knots. Um, so it was just a lot of really cool elements of that, that cue. That, was it that hard to see up. that one go? I mean, it sounds like it was a really neat pool cue. So it was it kind of hard to see that, that one find a new home. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, they, I enjoy having the cues because they are fun to look at. And um, when we travel and do shows around the country and, and we display them, it's, just great marketing because people want to come and see them. Mm -hmm. So it is hard to see them go, but we're into business selling pool cues. <laughs> <laughs> Very so, true. You probably yeah. don't want to keep all the pretty ones. Yeah, no, no, we don't want to keep them all. But, you know, every year when we come up with a, for me personally, when we build the next large queue for that Cue Makers Association, at that time, that's my favorite. Right? Do you when ever I, go visit your, your, cues at their at their new homes no i do see customers bring them around though okay. periodically um but, but they go all around the world like the ronin queue we sold to someone in taiwan who bought it um so so not you many haven't made it around. to taiwan to, to visit no, at its new home. no i haven't but maybe in the future <laughs> <laughs> i could almost imagine watching competition on tv and seeing one of your cues pop up and Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, different professional players that do play with our cues that if you follow the Pro Tour, you'll see players who play with our cues. You know, we built cues in the shop for Peyton Manning and, and different NFL players. Um, so you just never know who's going to buy one. That is neat. Yeah. So it is kind of neat. And just here in Little Nakusa. Yeah, just downtown Nakusa. <laughs> Um, so how can people get a hold of you, uh, business hours, that type of thing? Yep. So we're open um, Monday through Thursday, 9 to 5. 
and then Fridays from 9 to 4.30. And then typically on the weekends, it would be on appointment. But we have a a small showroom uh, where we have cues on display and then the different accessories and cases and and dart supplies. So, Have you ever done the pool cue with the matching case? That with the matching case. Um, He's thinking really hard. I was trying to think if we had a matching Voltori case with that Ronin one or not. Yeah, we, so we don't make the cases in-house, but if we did make the cases, we would have one that matched. Okay. <laughs> then if someone's kind of thinking to themselves uh, price range, um, to get into one of the production queues that you do, uh, what's a general price to get into something like that one? So <clears throat> the range in queues can range anywhere from $50 on up. Um, the queues... But to get a really good quality queue, you have to get in that two fifty three hundred range. Okay. Um, so that's where our queues start out, and the shop started at that two fifty three hundred range. But we sell queues in all variety of price ranges. Well, I'm sure so we don't we don't just only sell our queues there. We sell all the all the different brands of queues. Okay. And I'm sure an extremely custom one is sky's the limit. You know, if you can think of it, you can pay for it, and you'll do it. Yep, yep, we're willing to build a queue as much as you want to spend. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Actually, that, that's not too bad. For me not knowing, you know, much about at all, I think I, I do have a queue that I got from probably the pool people or something like 30, 40 mm-hmm. years ago. And I don't even remember what I paid for it, but I know it wasn't $1,000. You know, but being able to get in for a couple hundred dollars and getting a substantially decent queue, that's, that's right. attainable. And yeah. we always had, growing up, we had a pool table in our basement, mm-hmm. and there was always two pool cues that everyone really, really liked mm-hmm. out of, like, the 10 we had. And we could just tell the difference. I mean, we laid, you know, those two we could lay on the table, and it would just lay really nice, and you could put the other ones up there, and you could just, like, see the, the waviness mm-hmm. in it. And depending upon whether or not it was hot outside or, you know, winter, if it was too cold, how much of that wavy was in that <laughs> pool cue. Right. So there was always the two that we really, really liked, and we never really could. We always kind of like made them off in the corner. We never mixed them up <laughs> with the other ones because we always right. wanted to make sure we grabbed the two really good ones. Well, see, and you get the one with the big bow in it. That's how you get the trick shot to go around the curve, right? No, I'm joking. Right. <clears throat> We always made the gas play with those so that we, <laughs> we looked a little bit better. <laughs> right. Um, and I forget if you mentioned it, do you do service on existing queues? Someone can just walk in with their their queue and say, hey, I need this change serviced, whatever. Yep, we sure do. Yep. So you can bring in um, any brand queue and we can repair it and service it. So we um, do a lot of tip repair locally uh, where someone may have cues in their basement that they have for their home table. You know, we can replace the tips on those and service those um, as well as anything that's related to a pool queue we can fix. So. Oh, pretty good. Perfect. Carrie, do you have any more questions? I don't think so. Unless you guys have anything else. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Thanks for having us come. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. That was great talking with Brandon and Shane over at Jacoby Q's. It is. And it's always really neat to see what small businesses are kind of tucked away in these really small towns. And they are. They're small towns, but we've got a lot of great, mighty businesses in them. Internationally renowned. World handcrafted. I mean, yeah. You can't get any more cooler than that in a town of 3,000 people. Well, Kusa's got more than a little bit, a little bit more than three thousand. Okay. Well, I can't remember. Are you going to Google that now for me? Well, no, but okay. I, I know our, our mailing list in Nakusa is right about three thousand properties. Okay, that's probably where I get my three thousand from. Yeah. Okay. So they they've got I think about seventy five hundred people. Okay. Well, 8, wow. Eight thousand. Yeah. 
Yeah, N- Nakusa is a mighty little city. That's it why is. it's really neat that we're featuring them this year. So. Yeah, it's really neat to be able to go into those smaller towns and see what businesses are there and kind of give them that that nice big exposure that sometimes they make it overlooked at yeah. times. Like Brandon was saying, it started out with kind of a, a whim and a hobby, like, you know, so many interesting businesses do. I was going to say a lot of them start off that way. We get to hear, oh, this was just something for me to do after work. Right. I just wanted to tinker with something. And now it's a international business. And it does. It happens a lot. I've got at least four stories of friends who have started a business and maybe not quite as internationally renowned as Jacoby Q's, mm-hmm. but it, it melded in from they were doing something and made them happy. And one of their other buddies was like, you could, you know, start a whatever. You could make this into a business. You can start a brewery in your garage. Right. And then you decide to make one down on Grand Avenue. Right. That'll be a story for another time. It will be. But yeah. So, so much. See, now, it, this is also one of those, um, you know, don't forget to promote your friends mm-hmm. as far as if they have an idea, be supportive of them. Right. It could blossom into something fantastic. Exactly. Okay. So, you want to talk about the market? We're going to talk about the market a little bit here. The housing, the housing market in central Wisconsin. Housing market in central Wisconsin. Still, again, we're going to say... Unique. It feels like spring. Okay, so it feels like spring on Monday. Tuesday, we get the snowstorm. Wednesday, we get a rain snowstorm and cold. Right. And tomorrow's probably going to be like 80 degrees. Welcome to Wisconsin. Just wait five minutes. I know. We keep seeing that. So The real estate market feels like springtime because houses are coming on quite fast now. They are coming on quite fast. So again, I mean, if we look at everything today is Wednesday, the 23rd. About four o'clock in the afternoon, and we're looking at 15 homes. Okay. 15 homes in all price ranges in the greater Wisconsin Rapids area. Which, again, is kind of on par for what we've seen, you know, the last couple of months. Right. So, again, I mean, if we're looking at stuff under, you know, that 150 price range, we're looking at about seven homes to go take a look at. And, again, if we're looking... You know, in that 120, if you tell me you got $120,000 to spend on a home, we have zero. Uh-huh. Zero. That's an extremely popular price range. It is. And those are that, that nice budget-friendly homes. And we're, we don't really have homes in that, that price range. Uh, we do bump it up until we get to 180. Okay. And at 180, we have a beautiful, sprawling three-bedroom. Three-bath home. Open concept. Open concept. Hardwood floors throughout. Large basement, very tall. A 10-foot ceiling. Basement. Mm-hmm. Definitely room to finish off. I believe it's got drywall in the basement. In the basement, right. So, I mean, it's started to be finished, mm-hmm. but still just needs out those last few little steps of creating it to be your own. And an interesting history of the house as well, mm-hmm. because it was over by uh, McMillan Library. Excuse me. There you go. Yeah. It's a tongue twister. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, it was moved in 2011 onto this new foundation at its new location. Right. So once they did that, they had to um, upgrade everything. New furnace, hot water heater. Yep. And bring electrical. Those things up to code. Right. That had to be brought up to code. So we're. we're And the cellar just installed today. Yeah. Uh, new dishwasher and refrigerator. So oh. it's beautiful, all matching. I have a picture of it for you. You probably may want a different picture, but I have a picture for you. We can update the pictures. We can update it. Yeah. So <laughs> I just took it with my cell phone and um, you do a much better job of taking pictures than what I do. But I do have a picture to show you so that way you can see the new fantastic kitchen. Cool. And by the time that this airs, we already would have done the open house as well. But um, yeah, definitely you check out those pictures online. And then speaking of open houses, it's starting to become open house season again. Right. Um, the snow is pretty much gone away as, you know, unless we get a magical three feet of snow like did a couple of years ago. Yeah. But still, that should be gone fairly quick. So right. access, access to properties is now far easier. And you can be able to see what the lawn really looks like. Right. You know, during the wintertime, yes, we still sell homes during the wintertime. 
but it's always unique to find out what's hidden underneath the snow. Yeah. Lawns and roofs as well. Right. So we get to see whether or not they did lawn care in the fall time or if it was just, you know, mom got put into a nursing home or dad, either one, um, was put into a nursing home and we didn't do any lawn care. And now we've got twigs and pine needles and this and that and everything Mm -hmm. hidden underneath the snow. So um, now we definitely can see that. And then we get to talk a little bit about lawn care when it comes to a listing. One of my favorite subjects. I know. But yeah, so um, check out the uh, your your electronic resources. So you know, online with the Facebooks, and of course, you know, Realtor.com and CodalBankerSeward.com, or MyRapids.com, MyNacusa.com, right? All those outlets, and uh, they've got information on open houses that are coming up continually throughout the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. And that's you know. We're going to be doing that. We're going to be listing homes. We're going to be getting the open houses done, you know, hopefully within that first two or three days of hitting the market. So that way we can get lots of feet, feet in the, in the house. We want to be able to have the people come in, take a look at the home and decide if this is a home for them. Right. Um, and I'm seeing that a trend from a lot of firms as well. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be a good open house season this spring. Right. What else do we have? Okay. So then if we kind of look through the rest, we've got... Um, we start then after 80,000, we jump up to 200,000. So from 200,000 to five, six, five Oh six, uh, we're looking at the rest of the home. So the last seven homes are going to be in that price range. Okay. So again, we got a little, it's starting, there's a spread now, but it's still as choppy as, as it was before. You know, we're still missing those a little bit of that mid higher end homes between that 175 to 200. We only have a few of those. And then we jump either we've got the lower under that 120 or we've got above 240, 250, somewhere in there. So we're again, we're, we're spread out. We've got some homes. And those are the homes that are currently active and able to be, uh, uh, right of put, put an offer right on, to primarily put a, a primary offer. So right. again, if we look at so we look at the overall picture. Yeah, the overall picture. Because uh, again, continually we see things come on and then we see them go off within a, a couple of days. So all active throughout the Greater Wisconsin Rapids area, we're looking at sixty three homes that are listed. It's fantastic. Right of that sixty three, only fourteen, or did I say fifteen? Fifteen. Fifteen. 15 homes we can go and we can write an offer on. Sure. And so that the number in the 60s is larger than what we had uh, last week or so. Right. So that's also a good thing to see that our our inventory overall is sort of increasing in the background. Um, but but still, we're, we're facing the same inventory shortages that the entire country is seeing. Right. So again, I mean, it, there's lots out there. You know, even if we are able to, so say that you wanted to go see a home that already has an accepted offer on it. Um, With our listings, even after we get that accepted offer, we still allow showings because that way if something happens to that first offer, we could have that possible second backup list of people or go see it. You might be able to write a secondary offer on the house. The probability of, of a secondary moving into a primary position, I have not seen in almost a year. But it will still give you an idea as long as the homeowner allows it. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, we really want to stress the homeowner is always still in charge of their home, even after after they get that accepted offer. So if they don't want to take any more showings, that's up to the homeowner. We always try to encourage our homeowners to do those other showings just so that way we can get other people in the house to kind of see it just in case something would happen. Right. And especially now, I mean... uh... If you've listened to the show a little bit this last month, kind of touching on world economics and how that might be affecting things here in the continent, and then the demographics that are going on inside the United States as well, you know, everything's really fluctuating. Mm -hmm. So having that backup list of secondary interested parties, you know, who are, are writing an offer and getting that as a secondary offer just in case. You know, a lot of things can happen. Right. And we never know really what happens to those primary offers. It could be, 
you know, the family changed their mind. They're now no longer moving to the area. They've thought they were coming to, to this area. Now all of a sudden they get transferred over to Rhinelander. So the offer that they had in Wisconsin Rapids is not going to work. So they're getting out of it. The house is coming back on the market due to no fault of its own. So depending upon those situations of why a home comes back on the market, we never really know the true reason. Right. We just are glad that it came back on and we're going to find it a new, a new home, new owner. Especially with our large pool of buyers waiting to purchase a house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a seller's market still for sure. Right. Right. So if we can start with having that backup list already established, you know, that's a great thing for our sellers. So if anyone's listening and wants to still look at our properties that we have listed, you know, give a contact and there's a good chance we can get you in. Right. Exactly. Do we have vacant land? Okay. So let's switch over to vacant land. Of course we have vacant land. It's one of our fantastically fun topics to talk about. All right, vacant so land. vacant land. Well, and I think it's it's really neat because you can do so much with vacant land. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that blank canvas. It is. And what what house is someone looking to put on it? Exactly. So for vacant land in the greater Wisconsin Rapids area, 129. I believe 135 was our last week number. I don't remember. I can't re- not remember. But it was up there. It was up there. Um, but we're down now down to 129. Great. Pieces of vacant land. So again, all the way from little tiny to acreage. So you're looking at vacant land of, we would just want to be able to have a place to put our camper and just camp during the summertime. We can help you find that Mm -hmm. and help you navigate through that. Or if you're looking at, hey, I want to build my dream home because we can't find our, we can't find a home. Let's get the piece of land. Let's start getting you hooked up with a builder. Let's get those steps going and we can help navigate through. I am going to potentially build on this vacant land. So same offer, but different theories on how to write that offer and how to go about getting things done. So. And, and these are our experience stories from our experience because we've actually heard these conversations happening. Right. I mean, it, it's, it is buyers interesting coming up from a different area and moving here, but perhaps they want to just hunker down for the summertime and just need a piece of land to put a camper on. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to look toward the next steps. Maybe they're waiting for something in their life financially to clear up and whatnot. So all these stories, they're, they're true. They're from our background. We've heard them. We get a lot of people, you know, looking to just be here for the golf season. Sure. So buying, you know, a $12,000 piece of vacant land, being able to put a camper on it. They bring the camper. They do their golfing. At the end of the season, they take their camper off and they go to the next place. So being able to have that piece of vacant land here where we can put a camper on may help them. That might be an option for them. The best thing about land is go ahead and buy it. It's pretty much always a good investment. Right. I'd say 99.9% of the time because Mm -hmm. they're not making any more of it. They're not making any more. So... You know, definitely have some great choices as far as vacant land. And I know our next question is going to be the Rome area. A little bit, because I also have an interesting topic of vacant land. Okay. Okay, so from our friends over at the City Times, I have in front of me a newspaper. Excellent. I, I fluff it. Um, just, there's something about newsprint. You know, it feels, it smells, it's, it's great. Anyway, um, Top news from the City Times, you may have seen or heard, uh, Nature Conservancy acquires 3,243 acres in Adams County. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a group called the Nature Conservancy, so TNC, and they've recently purchased the land, uh, forested and wetlands in Central Sands region of Wisconsin. They're um, looking to, no, excuse me, um, they're seeing that a lot of that land is um, anticipated to be subdivided for private development, and they're excited to keep it instead for a natural wildlife habitat. Nice. Uh-huh. So it's, um, I believe, located just to the south of Adam's Friendship. So a, a little bit, you know, certainly south of Rome. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite that area, but yeah, it, it's it's a huge chunk of land. Um, 
it's not on the lake. I believe it's Castle Rock that's down that far. Yes. So it's just to the east of that. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited to get down and, and do some public land or not pub, well, pseudo public, public accessed right. land, you know, nature walks, you know. I really want to get up to Stevens Point to the Schmeagle Reserve. Sure. And just do a little bit of hiking up in that area. Green Circle I think Trail. Be, yeah, I think that would be a really cool thing to go and do. All right, so Rome area. Sure. All right, We've got active. A few, just a few minutes left. Go ahead. Touch All right, on the Rome so area. active listings. If you wanted to go buy a purchase a home in the Rome area, we're looking at five. Starting off at the $155,000, going only all the way up to $300,000. Wow. I know. Five. Five. But still. Cinco. <laughs> There's my Spanish show that I know. <laughs> good, job. good job. Numbers. Yeah. And the, the Rome area is popular. It is. Um, so that, that's another area where location is a little bit more important than features of the home um, depending on just where you want to be might be certain styles of houses or availability of houses as well mm-hmm. i know there's a, a lot of the lake cabin a lot of um, the a-frame style houses a lot that were built in the 60s and 70s when that area was really uh, developed right yeah so well, we can certainly do a tour of rome if you're curious about living down there but we try to focus people on, you know, what do you want? Do you need to be on water? And then just what part of the water? There's a bunch of options. We got options for you. That's the one thing we've got is options. So There's also properties that have deeded access in case you, you know, don't need to have the frontage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also some properties that come and go, uh, especially on the big water, where it's, um, you don't own the frontage. It's the association that that takes care of that and owns that property. So you may not be taxed as heavily. There's some advantages to that. And we can talk about that directly with you if you're curious. Correct. All right. That is good. Cool. So Rome area. Um, And if people have questions directly for you, how can they get a hold of you? They can give me a call or send me a text at 715-323-2577. And of course, we are on the internet, so social medias, Facebook and Instagram. Um, we're on the website, so if you're looking for current listings and whatnot, go to MyRapids.com or... MyNakusa.com. Right. Um, look for the little tag that says contingent. That means that there's probably an offer on it, and they're working through their contingencies before mm-hmm. the sale closes. Uh, but still, like we said, if you're curious about those properties, give a call. Sounds good. All right, we'll see you in in hour two. Stay tuned and come back for hour two of My Rapids Real Estate Show, where we take a deep dive into central Wisconsin real estate market and more housing-related topics.